Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover in this audio Luke chapter 3 verses 1 through 18, which covers the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry. We're going to take a look at two parallel Gospels, Mark and Matthew, to pick up some extra details as we go through. So let's start in verse 1, Luke chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip ruler of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias ruler of Abilene. Now that's a bunch of Roman officials ruling in the area of Israel, and the average person might not be interested in that, but since I'm a nerd, I am interested in it. First of all, we'll note that it's the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, which helps us lock down in time when John the Baptist started his ministry. We know that Tiberius ruled from AD 14 to 37, so if you add 15 years to that, you come up with roughly 29 AD. John the Baptist operates for about six months. Jesus started operating at the end of his ministry, which is about 30 AD. At least that's the way most people do it. And of course, these ancient dates are always subject to debate and dispute. But I'm going to take that as roughly where we're talking about. Now, why did Luke go to so much trouble to give all these dates and people? To show that he was writing an historical account, that Christianity is not a fairy tale. It took place in history. After all, the Incarnation was an event in history, and he wants to show the historical events that occurred. He starts out with the Emperor Tiberius. Tiberius was the third Roman emperor. He was the ruling emperor when Jesus was crucified, which is about 33 A.D., or 30 A.D., some people say. Again, like I say, these dates are controverted. Uh, he ruled from 14 to 37 A.D. He was noted for his cruelty and severity. He mentioned Luke mentions Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea at the time that John the Baptist got started. Pontius Pilate, of course, is the Roman official who ended up turning Jesus over to the Jews to be crucified. He was renowned for his brutal massacres of the Jewish people in Judea. He was totally insensitive toward the Jews. And in fact, not only Pontius Pilate, but all of the rules that are listed here were degraded, cruel, and corrupt. These present a remarkable contrast to the kingdom that John the Baptist is about to announce to the world, the kingdom of God. Let's look at some of these rulers. You got Herod, the ruler of Galilee. That's the famous Herod Antipas, who stole his sister-in-law, Herodias, from his brother Herod Philip I and married her. He was the same guy that executed John the Baptist because John the Baptist criticized him for stealing Herodias. So that's Herod Antipas. And then we've got his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias. Before we go to the people here, let's look at the areas they ruled, which might help narrow it down a little bit. I've got a nice map here, which unfortunately you can't see. But Judea, the area of Judea, of course, is around Jerusalem. You know where that is. Just, just north of Judea is Samaria, and then north of Samaria is Galilee, which is basically from the plain of Jezreel up to the area west of the Sea of Galilee there. Herod Antipas was in charge of Galilee. He, his area was called a tetrarchy, not a kingdom, but a tetrarchy of the Roman Empire. Then if you go east across the Jordan River, just south of the Sea of Galilee, that's Perea, and, go, and, and follow the, the Jordan River south on the Transjordan area, the east of the sea of uh, the east of the Jordan River, and go down just about all the way to the tip of the Dead Sea, roughly. That's Perea, the Transjordan area. Herod Antipas was in charge of that. Now, Herod Philip II was in charge of Trachonitis. If you look at the Sea of Galilee on the map, go up the Jordan River Valley to the Lake Hula, 
which is a little tiny lake north of the Sea of Galilee, and then go due east, that's Trachonitis. I think that's probably in present-day Syria or just south, is just south of Damascus. Then if you go up further from Lake Hula and you go get into the uh, anti-Lebanon and Lebanon ranges there and go into the valley, Mount Hermon is on the anti-Lebanon southern tip most southernmost point of the anti-Lebanon range and Mount Hermon is a, is a big landmark because it's a huge mountain and you go up that valley and you go halfway up the valley there between the Lebanon ranges and, and it's an area called Ituria and that's where Herod Philip II ruled. So now let's go back to these Herods. They were three brothers. Herod Antipas, ruler of Galilee and Perea. Herod Philip II, ruler of Ituria up there in the anti-Lebanon Valley, Lebanon Valley up there, and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene, which is even further north of Ituria than Herod Philip II was. Okay, now how do you get, keep all these Herods straight? I don't, Lysanias was also a descendant of Herod the Great. I don't know exactly how. I've got a nice family chart of Herod's family. Herod the Great, it takes a rocket scientist to keep all these Herods straight, but this is basically how you do it. Herod the Great dies after trying to kill all the babies at Jerusalem in 4 B.C. Herod the Great had lots of wives. Three of those wives had three kids that are involved in the gospel stories. His first wife, Mary Amber II, was the mother of Herod Philip I. He was the guy that married Herodias and had his wife stolen from him by his half-brother, Herod Antipas, whose mother was Malthus, who was a wife, another wife of Herod the Great. Now, Herod Philip I as I said, was married to Herodias, and Herodias and Herod the Philip I had Salome. Well, Salome was married to Herod Philip II, which is the Herod Philip that's mentioned here in Luke chapter 3, verse 1. So this Salome was the daughter of one of Herod's sons and the wife of another son. She married her uncle. All this sounds very incestuous to me. It's at least very complicated. Salome, of course, was the girl that did the sexy dance to get Herod Antipas to behead John the Baptist. But all of this is historical. It can be tracked down in secular records, and which shows that this is an historical account we are talking about. By the way, Herod Philip I is not mentioned in this list by Luke. But Herod Philip I, he ruled, where did he rule? Oh, he ruled the, the, he ruled Trachonitis, right to the east of Lake Hula there. And when he died, his brother Herod Philip II took over. All right, let's, having finished the historical background of the political leaders, Luke continues in verse 2 talking about the religious leaders in charge at the time. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. That's John the Baptist. Caiaphas was the ruling high priest at the time. His father-in-law was a retired high priest, Annas, and Annas was the real power behind the priesthood. He was the number one dog, even though he he had only de facto power, not de jure power. Interestingly enough, all you archaeological aficionados, in 1992, scholars discovered what they believed to be the tomb of Caiaphas. There was a barrel box discovered in Israel that had an inscription with his name. And this is, this is the only time a physical remained, remains, archaeological remains, have been found with a specific biblical character written on the artifacts. So that's kind of interesting, 1992, relatively recent. Now, these religious leaders that Luke mentions were every bit as corrupt as the political leaders that he just mentioned. They were more interested in power politics than in serving God. However, he mentions them to show that all of this is in history. This is history. This is not mythology. Now, he mentions that John the, the, John the Baptist 
received the word of God in the wilderness. That's where he was living. We know, know from Luke chapter 1, he lived in the wilderness right around there in the hill country of Judea. The wilderness is where many prophets are instructed by the Lord. So you see wilderness, think either judgment or prophecy. That's typically what wilderness signifies in the scripture. Well, it's appropriate because John the Baptist is about to pronounce judgment on those who don't repent. So he received the word of the wilderness and he's getting ready to preach judgment. Luke chapter 3, verse 3. He, John the Baptist, went into all the region around the Jordan. Now, Jerusalem is on a plateau about 20 miles west of the Jordan River. You have to go down that plateau to get to the Jordan River. And all around is hill country. And Jerusalem is kind of in a flat area with some valleys running through it. So he goes down to the Jordan River outside of Jerusalem. And he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So he's about 20 miles outside of Jerusalem. Now, he only started preaching about the age of 30. He'd been living in the deserts there for all of his life. Why? Because he didn't move until he received the call of God. And so many, this is a good application point. So many people want to act like prophets and start judging sin before they've received a call from God. And they make themselves to be painful, painful nuisances. Pains in the rear. I recall one time in my hometown, some young Calvinists had gotten the truth about the five points of Calvinism. So they go to a Methodist church, a Methodist church, Armenian church, stand up in the crowd and say, all of you are damned because you don't believe in the five points of Calvinism or something to that effect. It made such a stir in my sleepy little southern town that I still remember it now 40 years after. I'm sure the people who did it have, have since grown up and repented of that awful thing that they did. Some people just get very prophetic too early. John the Baptist was seasoned, though. He was dealing with God for all of his life. He didn't do anything but pray and get trained by God. He was preaching a baptism of, of repentance. This is not Christian baptism, which is called baptism into Christ in Romans 6, verses 3 through 4. A baptism of repentance, how can it be distinguished from Christian baptism? Well, baptism of repentance identifies a person with their need to get right with God and be cleansed. But Christian baptism, on the other hand, acknowledges that a person is already right with God. He is a new man, having risen out of the water. The old man, the sinful man, was buried symbolically by going under the water. And then he comes up, he's resurrected as a new man. It's a big difference. It's the, the two baptisms are distinguished in Acts 19 when Paul ran into some disciples and they said, we've only heard of the, John's baptism, we haven't been baptized in Christian baptism. And so after receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit, then... Peter, John, excuse me, Paul baptized them in water, so that shows the distinction. Now, the word forgiveness means not only forgiveness for sins, pardon, but also freedom for those sins. In fact, the New King James Version translates that word as remission, which means to put away. So he's preaching a baptism that will point to the putting away of sins, not only forgiving them of them, but putting them away outside of God's sight and also outside of their ability to enslave us to sins. This is a big deal, big important thing that he's preaching. We continue in Luke chapter 3, verse 4. As it is written in the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. I don't have the exact quote from Isaiah. I'll get it in just a minute when we turn over to, to the parallel gospels. But let's just state here that John the Baptist himself knew he was fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. How did he know? Because his father knew it even when John the Baptist was a baby. We look in Luke chapter 1, verses 76 through 77, and we read this. And you, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest. This is Zacharias talking to his little baby boy, John the Baptist. You shall be called the prophet of the highest, for you shall go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, 
So John the Baptist's father knew, and I'm sure he trained his son as he got older to understand. He says, look, God's called you to prepare the ways of the Lord. And, of course, that came out of the prophet Isaiah. Continuing with the prophecy, Luke chapter 3, verse 5, Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways be made smooth. Now, if you'll think of this image, somebody trying to build a road through a high mountain range like the Himalayas, the Rockies, something like that, to fill up those valleys, and no human being can do that. And every, any, any human being can lay low one of those mountains, or one of those hills, if you can say there's even a hill in the Rocky Mountains. No, you can't level those mountains. That's impossible. can't be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight. All the crooked roads climbing around those mountains just make them straight to go right through the mountains. Impossible. And the rough ways be made smooth, get rid of all the rocks, and make a nice paved highway. No, you can't do that. So it, this is, prophecy is basically saying that John the Baptist is going to prepare the way for a Messiah, a supernatural Messiah, a Messiah who could save Israel from its mess, and only this Messiah could save Israel from its mess because it would take supernatural effort to be done. So this is what Jesus is doing. He's doing something supernatural, impossible, incredible. Luke chapter 3, verse 6, And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, all flesh doesn't mean all flesh individually, obviously, because there are some stubborn people who just won't receive it. And In fact, John the Baptist, in a later passage, I forgot where exactly, he said that, it was when his disciples were complaining about Jesus baptizing at the same time he was. And John says, "All Jesus has come. He's seen things in heaven that no man can see. And he comes to the earth and people don't believe him. So John the Baptist knew that everybody didn't see the salvation of God. But what he means is all flesh categorically. In other words, every kind of human being will see the salvation of God. Men, women, Jews, Gentiles, slaves, free, Romans, Greeks, Englishmen, Chinese, everybody. Not individually, but everybody categorically. Now let's go to Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 to pick up some more detail. Matthew 3, verse 1, Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Those days, of course, were more specifically detailed by Luke, as I mentioned earlier. John the Baptist was born about 7 B.C., according to some people. His father was Zechariah. Jesus was born 4 B. Well, people debate when Jesus was born. These The older commentators tend to put him earlier than 4 B.C., his father was Zechariah, his mother was Elizabeth, as we know. The word John means gracious, or by the grace of the Lord. The name was given to him by an angel before his conception and by his parents at birth, if you remember, recall the story from Luke 1, Luke chapter 1. Now, he was preaching in the wilderness of Judea. As I said, that stretched about 20 miles from the Jerusalem-Bethlehem Plateau to the Jordan River and down to the Dead Sea also. Now, he didn't just preach to wild beasts and tree stumps because Judea, even though it was called a wilderness, it was inhabited by towns, villages, and cities. John would retire to the country part, but he would, I'm sure he would go into these towns, villages, and cities to preach, according to what Adam Clark says, and I think he's right. So now John and Jesus are about 30 years old, Jesus being about six months younger, this is roughly, than Jesus. Jesus, while all this is going on, is still living quietly in Nazareth. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. John the Baptist goes on and in his preaching, and he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what does repent mean? Repent means to make a radical change in one's life, according to my NIV study Bible. It means a total change in conduct, according to Adam Clark. Now, this idea wasn't in the mind of the Jews who were expecting a military messiah. And also, if you recall, Zechariah's prophecy says that John the Baptist would preach for forgiveness and remission of sins. And so it was not a military thing that, that Zacharias was 
prophesying about over his son. It was talking about spiritual stuff, forgiveness of sins. The word repent comes uh, here. It's metanoite, the second person imperative, plural for re for change of mind. Change your mind. Repent. Here's a quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Here and whenever it is used in connection with salvation, the word repent refers primarily to that sense of sin which leads the sinner to flee from the wrath to come to look for relief only from above and eagerly to fall in with the provided remedy, which, of course, is more than just, I believe, I believe, I believe. If you look in the New Testament, belief is an aspect and a prerequisite for believing in Jesus, for getting saved. But repentance is also mentioned all of the time. In fact, I got a good quote from Acts that I hadn't seen until recently, which I'll come across in a minute, that shows that repentance goes right along with belief. Now, the kingdom of heaven is hand. This phrase is only found in Matthew. Matthew used heaven because he's writing to Jews, and heaven is sort of a euphemistic way of saying God. <laughs> the Jews didn't like to say God, Yahweh. That was, they considered that offensive and not respectful. But the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are synonymous, synonymous according to some of the old contra against some of the old dispensationalists. You can easily prove they're the same. A kingdom is where the rule of God is. It's a present reality as well as a future hope. In other words, the kingdom is and is not yet, to use the fashionable terminology. Now, notice the kingdom is at hand. Now, that's not because God's kingdom and glory was about to start. Obviously, God's kingdom and glory has always been there. But this is because Jesus' earthly ministry was about to start, so that's why it was at hand. Matthew chapter 3, verse 3. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. I told you earlier that when I quoted that out of Luke that I would get you the sight. And here it is, Isaiah 43. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God, says Isaiah. Now this prophecy is quoted in all four Gospels, which shows how central and outstanding that prophecy was. It is the link between the Old and New Covenants. Now, one crying in the wilderness, John the Baptist is not said to be speaking in the wilderness. He's crying out in the wilderness. He's preaching with a great deal of fervency. And he says, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. This is referring to the practice of Eastern monarchs preparing to go on a journey. They sent messages before them to prepare all things for the passage. Passage. For example, they would open the mountain passes, get the rocks off the road. They would level the road. They would remove all impediments. And so this is the metaphor here. And so God is make, clearing the way for his Messiah by sending John the Baptist to get things ready for Jesus. Matthew 3, verses 4 through 5. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. Now when it says all Judea, it doesn't mean every single person in Judea. It just means a lot of people. All can sometimes mean a lot of, not everybody without exception. Lots of people going out to listen to him. Why did Matthew mention here in Matthew 3? Why did Matthew mention that John the Baptist was eating locusts? Because this is what prophets do. They live in the wilderness and they eat locusts. And they wear camel's hair. Locust was a clean animal, by the way. It did not violate the law. John the Baptist did not violate the law. His sparse eating habits, honey and locusts, were a visual protest against self-indulgence, of which there was plenty in Jerusalem with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and of course that's who he's preaching against mainly. What drew the people in the wilderness to hear John the Baptist? Well, there are several things. First of all, John's strange appearance. His dress was odd, his life was austere, and his message was awful. I mean, John the Baptist was your prototypical hellfire and damnation preacher. He didn't mince words. The axes at the root of the trees... 
He basically said, you're going to hell unless you repent. So people said, whoa, we we'll go out here and hear this. But also they might have thought he might be the Messiah, as John Gill points out. And even if he turned out he wasn't the Messiah, there hadn't been a prophet in Israel for four, four hundreds of years, about 400 years. So even if he wasn't the Messiah, he might be a prophet. So that might be worth checking out. As I mentioned, he wore camel's hair. Rough garments were common to the prophets. We can see this in Zechariah 13:4. And it will come about in that day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies, and they will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive. So to make people think that they were a prophet, a false prophet would put on a hairy robe because that's what true, that, because that's what true prophets wore. Second Kings 1.8, they answered him, he was a hairy man with a leather girdle, leather girdle bound about his loins, and he said it is Elijah the Tishbite. So Elijah was hairy, and that's probably the hairy garment he wore, had a leather girdle around his waist. Matthew 3, verse 6, and they were being baptized, these are the people who came out from the wilderness in Judea, they were being baptized by him, by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, as they confessed their sins. Now, the Jordan River, of course, is the river that runs from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. It's the principal river in Israel. East of it is called the Transjordan area. If you don't know the geography of Israel, you have to know the Jordan River. You need to know geography in general. It was closest point to Jerusalem was about 20 miles. Now, water is the perfect symbol for washing clean of sins, and so that's what John used to baptize with, to symbolize, hey, you need to be washed clean of your sins. Now, this is a rabbit trail, but it's an interesting rabbit trail about the mode of baptism, which Christian theologians love to debate. Did John the Baptist dunk, dip, submerge his, his, his what do you call them, his baptizees into the water, or did he just stand them up and pour water on their head? Well, I think there's no question that he dunked them. I, I used to practice law, and I always had weak cases and always lost them. And I used to think, I'd love to have a strong case. Well, you know, if this showed up in a court of law and I had to defend, I had my choice to defend a dunker or a poor, I would defend the dunker any day because it's a slam dunk, folks. It's easy. But I'm going to give you the arguments of a poor, Adam Clark. He says it is certain that bapto and baptizo, both of those Greek words mean poor as well as dip. He said it was impossible impossible for John to dip all of Judea because there's too many people. Well, I don't know. I don't see why it's impossible to dip people in the Jordan River. There's plenty of water. And plus he had his disciples helping him baptize. Does it really take that much more time to dip rather than pour? I mean, you've got to get the baptizee up to the river and you got to dip down. you got to get some kind of instrument, a pitcher or something and pour water over his head and said, I baptize you in the name of however he baptized. Or you take him and dunk him under the water. If you ask me, be quicker to, to dip than it would be to pour. So that's a that is a bogus argument, Mr. Clark, in my opinion. He said it's not safe to dip women, Adam Clark continues, so therefore we have to pour the women over the women. Really? Were women really that much worse swimmers than men back then? You, pour, you dip them in the Jordan River and, and, and you might drown them? Well, for one thing, the water was probably not even over their heads. They probably went up to their waist or maybe their chest, maybe. They're not going to drown the women. Adam Clark says it's not modest for women to be baptized. Really? With all the clothes that women wore back then, how could they not be modest? They could be baptized with all their robes on. Adam Clark also says that their lives would have been endangered without a change of clothes. They probably would not have brought a change of clothes to go into the wilderness because baptism, such as John was preaching, was such a novel thing. And so they wouldn't have had a change of clothes, and then they would have frozen to death if you dipped them. Well, first of all, that assumes that John's baptized in the winter, which I don't know. It could have easily been in the spring. But it also assumes that the people, having learned that John was baptiz baptizing, didn't have the foresight to bring a change of clothes with them. They might think, I think I might go out there and get baptized. I'll, I'll, I'll take some clothes with me. Please. 
they were dipped. They were immersed. In fact, in another area, another time, John was baptized in another area near Anon, near Salem, which were two towns further north up the Jordan Valley, right south of the Sea of Galilee, right east of the Jezreel Valley up there. And there it says, the scripture says, he went up there because there was much water. You need a lot of water to baptize. It doesn't take much water to sprinkle the poor. But at any rate, that's not the important thing, really. The important thing is what is symbolized by the baptism. And, of course, dipping, dunking, immersing symbolizes death and resurrection better than pouring does, that's for sure. Pouring just represents cleanliness, sprinkling. doesn't represent hardly a thing to me. Now, the people confessed their sins. They probably confessed aloud to the people as well as to God, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, and I think that's probably true. All right, let's turn over to Mark chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, pick up a few little details here. Actually, we'll go through verse 4. Verse 2 in Mark chapter 1, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Now, I've already mentioned that that prophecy, that quotation, is from Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness, make a straight highway for our God in the desert. We've already mentioned that. But the first part of this quotation comes from Malachi 3.1. Let me read that. See, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you desire. See, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord will suddenly come to his temple, his temple being the church. And he came suddenly. He just showed up there on the banks of the Jordan, got baptized in water, got baptized in the Holy Spirit. Malachi 3.1. So when, when Mark says this, as is written in Isaiah the prophet, Look, I'm sending my messenger. He's also quoting from Malachi 3.1. See, I'm going to send you my messenger. Now notice that even though Mark is primarily writing to Gentiles, people think that he might have been writing to the Gentile elders of the church of Rome, but whoever he was writing to is probably Gentiles. He grounded his gospel in the Old Testament. Even, gen even writers to the Gentiles didn't mind quoting from the Old Testament. When you take the average Christian today, they, they don't know anything about the Old Testament, including me, I'm sorry to say, for most of my adult life. And my, on my bucket list is I'm going to learn the Old Testament a lot better than I know it now. Mark chapter 1, verse 4, John came baptized in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, that for forgiveness of sins means which points forward to the forgiveness of sins, according to John Dick Gill. So it would read like this. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance which points forward to the forgiveness of sins. It does not mean which brings about. So it does not read like this. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance which brings about the forgiveness of sins. No. Forgiveness of sins comes from belief and repentance, not getting baptized in water. And unfortunately, there are lots of people in the body of Christ, like what? Um, Episcopals, Catholics. I think Lutherans too, I can't remember. They've got this idea that you've got to get baptized to get saved. It's crazy. Not true. Well, I shouldn't say it's crazy. I get You can make scriptural arguments for it. So let's just say it's wrong. Not true. All right, now let's turn back to Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 14, and we'll continue speaking of John's initial ministry in the wilderness. Verse 7 in Luke 3. John said to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, you den of snakes, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, addressing your audience as a family of snakes is not the usual way of winning an audience. That's not the way you use the Dale Carnegie method of winning friends and influencing people. Now, compare this to the way that 
seeker-friendly, I call them sinner-friendly, megachurch pastors do it. You know, we, oh, we need to suck up to the sinners out there, and we need to give them basketball courts, and we need to tell them that they are worthy, even though they might have, they, we're not going to talk about their sins, we're just going to talk about what great people they are. John the Baptist would know nothing of that. He called them a den of snakes, because that's what they were. He called it like it was. That reminds me just recently, I, I've been going through all these Gospels to teach these audios, and I've noticed that, that there's no messing around. Jesus didn't pull his punches with the Pharisees either, neither did John the Baptist. And I, somebody asked me to t- talk to 23 Chinese PhDs at a meeting at the University of Georgia, or near the University of Georgia in Athens, Georgia. And I know communists haven't been in China for 23 years, and I know that they're privileged people. They're usually rich. The reason they were, these people over here on exchange scholarship was probably because they were over here on a junket arranged by the Communist Party, the fruits of being a big shot in Chinese society. And I knew that, and in fact, these Chinese professors had told the host of this meeting that, you know, if we become a Christian, we'll have to not be a communist anymore. We'll have to give up our communist membership card, and our kids won't be able to go to school, and and we won't be able to get good jobs. In other words, a huge cost to become a Christian. So I said, okay, if that's what they think, I'm just going to tell them the truth. So I, I got what Jesus said about bearing your cross. You've got to be willing to follow me till, I die, till you die. I told how Jesus said to Matthew, a tax collector, follow me. Give up your cush tax collecting job. Follow me. How he talked to Simon and uh, Simon and, his, and James and John who were fishing, and they just pulled up a big miraculous draft of fishes. They had it made financially, and Jesus said, follow me. Give it all up. Well, why not tell people the truth? They're going to find it out sooner or later anyway. It's ironic that if you tell people the truth and how hard it is to follow Jesus, more people follow him because then they realize that he's worth following, that the kingdom of God is worth dying for. It's worth everything that you got. That's the truth. Why not tell them when John the Baptist was telling them? Now, he said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, you can't preach salvation to anyone unless you explain to him he's in a state of damnation. That should be obvious. It's not obvious to people like, well, I won't mention any names, but people like so many people in megachurches today, maybe like Joel Osteen, Andy Stanley. Uh, I hate to mention names, but you know what I mean. But you can't get people saved unless they know that they're in a state of damnation first. So what John the Baptist is, he says, he's being sort of sarcastic. He says, hey... You all running out of the wilderness. It must be you're about to run from the judgment that's about to come on Jerusalem. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So what John is doing is giving them an oblique reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 when Jerusalem was going to be burnt to the ground. And he's saying, hey, you guys must be smart being sarcastic, of course. You guys, you snakes are real smart. You realize your city's going to get burnt down, so you're coming out here in the wilderness. Total sarcasm. Again, that's a good point to make for those who say that there's no place for sarcasm in the gospel. Come on. John the Baptist was sarcastic. And how many times was Jesus sarcastic? Plenty of times. The reason that people today say that sarcasm is no good is because they're afraid to preach the gospel, the gospel of wrath and justice, as well as freedom and deliverance from that wrath and justice of God. Now, of course, you're not supposed to use sarcasm with believers who, are, who don't need to repent. Nobody ever did that. But when it comes to dealing with opponents of the gospel, oh, yeah. Sarcasm was used constantly, and this is a good example of it. Now, John, as I mentioned earlier, wearing wearing hairy clothes and eating locusts, he was basically a weird person. He lived all his life in a desert. Hard to develop social skills when you're living in a desert. He, he ate nothing but locusts and honey. He wore weird clothes, camel's hair, and a leather belt. So God uses weird people. He does. His weirdness did not turn people away from wanting to know how could they be delivered from their sins, because that's what people really want to know. 
They don't want basketball courts and all that kind of and, and food courts in their churches. They want to be, know how they want to know how they can be delivered from their sin because everybody knows they're a sinner. They might deny it, but deep down in their heart, they know they're condemned. Their conscience will tell them that. They're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Luke chapter 3, verse 8. John the Baptist continues, Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Now the rabbis taught that it was impossible for any descendant of Abraham to go to hell. They believed in a salvation by status, which is even more dumb than a salvation by works. People bound for hell have remarkable ways of convincing themselves that they aren't bound for hell. Most of the time they pretend that they're good people who have done good works, and now here they're pretending that they're good people merely by the fact that they were born of Abraham. Hey, I'm a Jew, and I can go out and rob and not take care of my parents, steal, lie. So John is not having any of that. He's more interested in fruit, so he said, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Good works, like fruit, cannot be manufactured through the efforts of men. Fruit grows naturally from a good stalk. They have to grow naturally, those fruits, drawing life from the tree they're growing on. So our good works must grow naturally from the new life that Jesus has given us, as in the parable of the vine and the branches in John chapter 15. Verse 9 in Luke 3, Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees, John the Baptist continues. Every tree that therefore does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He's referring to the fact that the judgment on Jerusalem is coming soon, about 40 years from now, one generation. The axe is sitting, the Roman axe is just getting sharpened up, getting ready to be swung. And when it happens, every tree that does not bear good fruit is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. In other words, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the rulers and the leaders of Jerusalem will get destroyed by the Romans in 8070. That's what he's talking about. John the Baptist is preaching hellfire and damnation because that's what his audience needed to hear. Now, of course, it's, it's pointless and offensive to preach hellfire and damnation to people already saved, but it is courageous and necessary to preach hellfire and damnation and loving to do so to the lost. And these people were lost, and John the Baptist is trying to get them to repent. Luke chapter 3, verse 10, and the crowds asked him, what should we do? Now, these are the crowds. These are not the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They didn't repent, but the other crowds were struck to the, to the quick. They weren't offended by John's hellfire and damnation preaching. They wanted to get saved. Luke chapter 3, 11 through 14, in reply, he said to them, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors come to be baptized, came to be baptized, and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? He said to them, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. In other words, quit, quit extorting the people. Verse 14, soldiers also asked him, and we, what should we do? He said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations, and be satisfied with your wages. A soldier had power, especially a Roman soldier in an occupied country, and they could use their power unjustly to say, you don't give me money, I'm going to turn you over to the Roman authorities and throw you in jail. And John says, don't do that. So he looks at various occupations that were subject to abuse. He never condemns those occupations. He never condemned the office of tax collecting. He never condemned soldiers, the military. He was not a pacifist. But he says, perform your occupations Morally, Now, he's not asking his listeners to do anything heroic. He's just asking them to act like a basic, basic, decent human being, to do the things that an ordinary parent would teach his little children. People had sunk so low into sin that ordinary decency seemed strange. In fact, integrity in ordinary matters is actually the best way to tell whether someone is repentant of their sins. You know, you look at somebody and they're cheating on their expense accounts with their companies. They're stealing paper and pens from the office. They're cheating on their tax 
returns. After a while, you say, this person's not following the Lord. I don't want to have anything to do with him. So, so morality in little things is important. I've got a good friend of mine who, because of some kind of technical problem, could have collected $7,000 in severance pay, $7,000, and it depended on whether he had signed this particular document. I don't, I don't remember the details, but it was questionable, and he said the Lord con convicted him of it, and he called the human resource people at his company and said, I'm sorry, you don't owe me this money. $7,000! Because he wanted to be honest. Now, it turns out that company was honest, too. They gave it to him because they figured, well, it's a technicality that we don't owe it to you. So they gave it to him anyway, and so God blessed him anyhow. But he was perfectly willing to give up $7,000. That's the kind of thing that John the Baptist is talking about. Not just because you are a child of Abraham are you going to see the kingdom, but you need to bring forth fruit. And fruit always goes with repentance. If people get saved, they're going to have some kind of fruit. And that's why people say, I believe in Jesus, but then they live like hell. They don't believe in Jesus. They say they do, but they don't. Because repentance, which means bringing forth fruit, goes along with belief. They, 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 there's two sides of the same coin. You can't own a coin with only one side. If you believe in Jesus, you're going to change your lifestyle. You're going to turn away from sin and confess your sin and so forth. Now, here's an application point here that means a lot to me. If one's profession is forcing you to do things that violate your conscience, if you're a soldier and can't be a soldier, well, then don't do it. If you're a tax collector working for the IRS and you get tired of what the IRS is doing, then don't do it. I was a lawyer. And I got tired of being asked to do things that I considered immoral. And so I said, I'm out of here. I left. Almost starved to death, but I left. Of course, I was starving when I was practicing law, too. So that finances wasn't the main thing that impelled me to leave the profession. It was the, you know, defending people that were doing drugs. And I knew they were doing drugs. Great day. I just couldn't, couldn't do it. Now let's turn to Matthew 3, 7 through 10 and continue with the story. But when he, in verse 7, in Matthew 3, but when he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, I just talked about that, why he said they were snakes leaving the city because of the fire. Jerusalem's about to be burned. Here, John mentions the particular opponents of his that, excuse me, Matthew mentions the particular opponents of John who came out to the wilderness, Pharisees and Sadducees. Let's look at some of the characteristics of these guys. The Pharisees, they were legalists, they were separatists. Pharisee probably comes from the word which means to divide, to make a breach, although that's not certain. They often meddled with affairs of government, even though they didn't participate in the government a lot. They would try to get involved in politics by denouncing certain things. They were rather dreaded by the government of Israel than loved by the government of Israel, as you can imagine. The government was mainly populated by rulers who were Sadducees, which we'll talk about in a minute. They strictly kept the law of Moses plus the traditions of the elders. Law of Moses plus the traditions of the elders. That's important to distinguish. And this had generated into an often hypocritical observance, an observance on the surface of the church tradition of the elders and on the surface an observance of the law of Moses when actually they were violating the law of Moses as Jesus often pointed out. First mention of Pharisees is in a description by Josephus of the three sects of schools in which the Jews were divided. I mentioned the Sadducees were also the Essenes who were kind of a super spiritual puritanical type sect that were a minority sect in the time of the jesus the pharisees were the popular party they were extremely accurate and minute in all matters appertaining to the law of moses paul himself was a pharisee as he mentioned to the council of jerusalem there at the end in acts 23 
There was much that was sound in their creed, yet their system of religion was a form and nothing more. I'm getting this from Easton's Illustrated Dictionary. Theirs was a very lax morality. On the first notice of them in the New Testament, they are ranked by our Lord with the Sadducees as a generation of vipers. That's the verse we just read. They were noted for their self-righteousness and their pride. They were frequently rebuked by our Lord. Now, as far as their doctrine, Adam Clark mentions that the Pharisees believed in a confused way in the resurrection, as the Sadducees did not. However, they also, the Pharisees, received the Pythagorean doctrine of metempsychosis, transmigration of the soul, reincarnation. Pythagoras was famous for that. Plato picked it up from Pythagoras. He believed in it, and so did the Pharisees. That seemed like a, I always think that idea comes from Buddhism out in China. No, it's been around for a long time, even in Western philosophy, from the Greeks. And the Pharisees believed that non-believers went straight to hell without transmigration. You had to be basically good before you get reincarnated as a pigeon or something. If you were really bad, you went straight to hell. Now, the Sadducees, the other party that came out to check out John the Baptist in the wilderness, they were worldly, they were political, political, they were doctrinally deviant, they denied the resurrection of the dead, they denied the existence of angels and demons, they denied the authority of the Old Testament, except for the Pentateuch, the first five books. They denied that there was an afterlife, they denied heaven, they denied hell, they denied that God providentially worked in the affairs of men. So, notice that they're also called hypocrites by John the Baptist. Not, the Pharisees are noted for hypocrites. You usually don't think of Sadducees as hypocrites, but John the Baptist called them hypocrites. Let me read you a quote from Adam Clark on the Sadducees. Quote, the Sadducees had their origin and name from one Sadoc, a disciple of, a disciple of Antigonus of Socho, president of the Sanhedrin and teacher of the law in one of the great divinity schools in Jerusalem about 264 years before the incarnation. This Antigonus, having often in his lectures informed his scholars that they should not serve God through expectation of a reward, but through love and filial reverence only, Sadoc inferred from this teaching that there was neither rewards nor punishment after this life, and by consequence that there was no resurrection of the dead, nor angel, nor spirit in the invisible world, and that man is to be rewarded or punished here for the good or evil he does. They received only the five books of Moses and rejected all unwritten traditions. They didn't believe in the traditions of the elders that like the Pharisees did. From every, and may God bless them for that, from every account we have of this sect, it plainly appears they were a kind of mongrel deist and professed materialist, nice terms to call them. Now this idea of doing serving God without idea of reward. That's an interesting idea. I remember in Michael Jordan, a commercial in which Michael Jordan was shooting free throws and he's talking to himself in his head and he says, would I do this? Would I play basketball if I didn't have all these mobs of adoring people cheering me on? He pauses a little bit and he says, you bet I would. Why? Because he loves, he loves basketball intrinsically for its own sake, not because of the rewards that come from playing basketball. And so the idea is, well, should we love Jesus because of who he is intrinsically and not because of the rewards that he gives us. Well, that's a hard question because Jesus plainly promises us rewards, and this is the way I, in my small mind, have reconciled that, is I think that God, through periods of time, will test you what the old medieval mystics would say, the dark night of the soul, like John of the Cross. You have a dark night of the soul when God tests you, and everything goes wrong. You don't get any reward for doing anything right. I've been through such a period. I know how it is. It lasted about three, four, five, five years, I think. It was a long time. I got to the point where I didn't want to help anybody. Every time I helped somebody, they keep me in the teeth. I said, what's the point? And I would have to tell myself, well, it's because we're supposed to. Don't grow weary of doing good. But there was no joy in it, and I'll tell you that, because I just, it was like a reverse incentive. Everything was backwards. 
And that period passed, and now I'm getting blessed with rewards by Jesus every day. So that's how I, I reconcile that idea. The Sadducees just made a blanket law out of it and said you should never expect a reward from Jesus. Of course, that violates lots of passages in the, in the Scriptures. If you then, being evil, know how to good gifts, good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Heavenly Father give good gifts to them that ask Him? So we do get rewarded for following God. That was a nice little rabbit trail. Now, why did these Sadducees and Pharisees come out there? The Sanhedrin was sending them out to make sure that some religious revival didn't get out of hand and take their power away. That's what they were doing. And they also wanted to be seen of men. They didn't want to repent. They wanted to be leaders of this new religious revival. Now, this idea, uh, this statement that John the Baptist made, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? I mentioned that it was AD 70, destruction of Jerusalem. This is what John Gill and Adam Clark say, and I believe that's what John the Baptist is talking about. But some people say it's the general resurrection and judgment at the end of time. In other words, Pharisees and Sadducees, you need to repent or you're going to go to hell. Well, the problem with that that John Gill says is that baptism could not save them from going to hell. Well, but you could argue against Gill that, well, but if you repented along with your baptism, that would save you from hell. So that doesn't really answer the question, I don't think. So, I, you know, it could go either way. I tend to think it's the destruction of Jerusalem in eighty seventy. Matthew Chapter 3, verses 8 through 9, John the Baptist continues talking to the crowds. He said, Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I've already mentioned that, in the, in the, when I was going through Luke. Do not suppose that you could say to yourselves, We have Abraham, my father, for I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. And as I mentioned earlier, John is saying salvation is not by birthright, but through faith in Christ. This was a common idea. Here's a verse in John chapter 8, verse 39. They, the Pharisees, answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Don't just talk about your status. Do deeds that follow from your status, which is exactly what John the Baptist preached when he said in this verse, Matthew 3, verses 8 through 9, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't just say you've got Abraham for your father. Now he says, I say to you from the, that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. What he's saying is stones ain't worth nothing. God can easily get children. He doesn't need you to be children of Abraham. That's basically what he's saying. In other words, the Pharisees and Sadducees were worthless as rocks in their present condition. Now, some people say that when John says that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham, he's referring to the church. You know, Father Abraham, Romans 4, we are all children of Abraham, including, including the Gentiles. Matthew 21, 43, Jesus, uh, Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it, which would be Christians. Jewish Christians as well as Gentile Christians, but basically away from the, the rabbinic kingdom of the Jews and the Pharisees. Now here's that verse I promised you that shows that repentance goes along with belief. In Acts 26, verse 20, that this is the early apostles preaching. We should sort of imitate the way they did it, the way they evangelized. Acts 26, verse 20, but Paul kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem. And then throughout, throughout all the regions of Judea, and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent, there's that word repent, and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. So there you see repent, repentance and fruit that comes along with repentance are tied together right there in, in Acts. Tied together here with John the Baptist. Tied together by Jesus when he says the kingdom is going to be taken away from you and given to, to a people producing the fruit of it. It's more than just naked belief. It's confessed with your mouth. It's believe in your heart, confess with your mouth. Yes, no, that's all right. But when you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you're also going to repent, change your mind, turn away from sin, and start practicing the deeds of righteousness. If you don't, we have very good warrant to question whether you really believed when you said you believed. 
After all, did not James in the book of James say that faith without works is dead? In other words, there ain't no such thing as fruitless faith. It doesn't exist. You have faith, you're going to grow works. It's just going to happen. Naturally, put a seed in the ground, it's going to grow some fruit. Matthew chapter 3, verse 10. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees, John the Baptist continues. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Notice when you say axe is laid at the root, that means the whole tree is going to be cut down, not just the branches. Everything is going to be destroyed, like happened in Jerusalem in AD 70. That's what I believe he's referring to. Now, he could be referring to the Sadducees and Pharisees and every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is thrown into the fire of hell. Could be. I don't think so. I think he's talking about the fire of AD 70 in Jerusalem. Notice he said the axe is already laid. That means the judgment is in process. It's going to happen very soon. AD 70, 40 years, one generation. This idea of trees being thrown into the fire is an Old Testament symbol for judgment, a typical Old Testament metaphor for judgment. Jeremiah 46, verses 20 through 223. This is referring to Babylon coming and wiping out the Egyptians. Its sound moves along like a servant, serpent, for they move on like an army and come to her as woodcutters with axes. They have cut down her forest, declares the Lord. Surely it will no more be found, even though they are now more numerous than locusts and without number. So Egypt is going to be cut down like a forest. Ezekiel 31.3, this is Ezekiel talking to Egypt, referring back to how Assyria was taken out. Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon, that's a tree, with beautiful branches and fine shade, and very high in its top was among the clouds. Drop down to Ezekiel 31, verses 11 through 12. Therefore, I will give it, Assyria, for I will give it into the hand of a despot of the nations. He will thoroughly deal with it according to its wickedness I have driven it away. Alien tyrants of the nations have cut it down and left it. On the mountains and in all the valleys its branches have fallen and its boughs have been broken in all the ravines of the land. And all the peoples of the earth have gone down from its shade and left it. All right, let's go back to Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 18, and we'll finish up shortly. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. And I am, I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, why did the people in verse 15, why were they filled with expectation? Well, all sorts of things might have led to this attitude. Many things had happened about three decades earlier. Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, had a vision of Gabriel in the temple. He came out dumb, if you recall, and had to wave his hands. They had to name the child John, like the angel had said. Then the angel appeared to the shepherds in the field. The angel and the host of angels appeared to the shepherds in the field who then went to Mary. And then those angels might have gone to, they might have been supplying the temples, the, the temple with sheep and they might have gone and told all the people in the temple, hey, we just saw a bunch of angels in the field talking about the Messiah being come, having come. The word was out. I mean, after all, Herod himself heard the word. He tried to kill all the babies in Bethlehem. So a lot of things had happened 30 years before. Anna and Simeon had come and prophesied in the temple to the, to to Mary and Joseph and, G and the baby Jesus. And of course, the rabbis constantly taught that the Messiah was coming. They were talking about a political Messiah, but they were still talking about a Messiah. And then all of a sudden, John the Baptist appears in the in the wilderness preaching hellfire and damnation. And all the, when people heard that, they start going out, what day? Maybe this is the Messiah, or maybe it's a prophet, 400 years with no prophet. So it's only natural that they thought that John the Baptist might be the Messiah. Now notice when all this adulation was coming to John, 
John was a very humble man. He ended up losing all of his disciples to Jesus. He ended up getting being put in prison. He ended up being killed. He said, I must decrease that Jesus might increase. He was a humble man. And he didn't have any reason to be humble because he had, he had mobs of people coming to listen to him. Didn't mean anything to him. He's a very humble man. And his humility is shown by what he says. He says, look, I'm not worthy to untie the Messiah's sandals, the one coming after me. The rabbis taught that a teacher could ask a student to do anything but one thing. A student could not be asked to untie a teacher's sandals because only a slave could do something like that. A student was low status, but a slave was even low status. And John said, I'm even lower than a slave. I can't even untie his sandals. That's pretty humble. John predicts what's going to happen at Pentecost, as well as four other places in Acts as well, the filling of baptism of the Holy Spirit. Notice that John says you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, a lot of people, of course, feel this at Pentecost, which it should be. But surely the same crowd of people that John is addressing will not be the same crowd in the upper room, the 120 in the upper room in Acts 2. And I take from this that means that all Christians should receive this, not just those at Pentecost, not just those at Cornelius' house, not just those disciples at Acts chapter 19 at Ephesus. Not just those in Samaria in Acts chapter 8, all of who were filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized in the Holy Spirit. I think it's referring to all Christians. I realize that's controversial, but I don't care. He who controls the microphone controls the spin. Now, John predicted that they, that Jesus would baptize with fire as well as with the Spirit. Now, people disagree on what fire is. This is kind of a obscure reference. Here's three options. I'll tell you what I think it is, but I'm not absolutely sure by any means. The first option is that to be to baptize with fire is just another way of saying baptized with the Holy Spirit. Remember the first baptism of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, there were tongues of fire. And so Jesus is talking about you're going to be baptized with the Spirit and with fire because the Holy Spirit's going to come on you and those cloven tongues of fire are going to come on you too. That's perfectly reasonable. Another option is that the baptism of fire means a baptism of hell, going to hell. John was speaking to all his onlookers, Pharisees as well as the penitent listeners, those who repent would be baptized in the Holy Spirit, and those who don't repent will be sent to hell. That makes sense, especially when you look at the next verse, Luke chapter 3, verse 17. And his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So that sounds like judgment right there. So that's what I tend to think it is because of the context. The third option is referring to Christian suffering, because Jesus is our example Jesus experienced three baptisms at the River Jordan and thereafter. He was baptized in the water by John the Baptist. He was baptized in the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit like a dove came on him. That's two baptisms. The third baptism is he was baptized into suffering. Because in Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, Jesus, when he was baptized in water, went up and straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were descending upon him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. They're the first two baptisms. Right after that, he goes into the wilderness, Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted the devil, and there he was baptized into suffering. Now, this is an interesting thing because all three options to me make perfectly good sense, even though it's got to be one of the three. Unless there's a fourth option I hadn't thought about. But those three options fit pretty good. So I'm not going to take a stand on that one. John says in Luke 3, verse 17, that John the Baptist, uh, Luke says this, that John the Baptist's winnowing fork is in his hand. What is a winnowing fork? You stick the fork in the, into the wheat, which has the husk. You throw the wheat up in the air. The wind blows the husk away, the chaff, and the pure grain falls down between the tongs of the fork into the container, and therefore you have... You have winnowed the wheat, and likewise, there's a separation of the chaff from the wheat, and likewise, Jesus is going to separate the believers from the non-believers. 
Jesus did not come to bring peace to the world, but to but to but to bring judgment. Separates father from son, mother from daughter. You know the famous verse. In his own circle of disciples, there was Judas on the one hand and Peter on the other hand. He separated them. That's Jesus' job. John the Baptist predicted it, to winnow the chaff from the wheat. Believers for unbelievers. we got to quit being sentimental about the fact that people who raise their fist up against God are going to go to hell. They're going to get their just dessert. I know that's not popular to say today among the wussy pussy evangelical church of America. In fact, they're going to be sent into unquenchable fire, John the Baptist says. Now, this is a strong metaphor for hell because unquenchable fire, that's difficult for those who say that hell doesn't exist, who say that non-believers merely lose their consciousness. Unquenchable fire sounds like you're going to burn for a long time. Now, let's make a point here that there are different metaphors for hell. Unquenchable fire is one, the worm that doesn't stop boring into your body. That's another metaphor. And also uh, darkness, eternal darkness, which, of course, doesn't fit with fire. So I don't know what hell's going to be like. But I like to watch these near-death experiences. People go to hell, both saved and non-saved, and it sounds pretty awful. Of course it's awful. Spending an eternity apart from the God that loves you and in the presence of Satan and his demons, there's nothing more evil than Satan and his demons. Just look what they do. Look at the evil that's in the world. You want to spend your life like that? Why would anybody want to spend their life like that? All right, ladies and gentlemen, thus ends this quite long audio on the ministry of John the Baptist at the very beginning of his ministry. It pulls together all the gospel notices of that ministry, and so I think it was worth the, t the trouble to go to, to make this uh, audio a little bit extra long. We will continue next audio as we take up the beginning of Jesus' ministry. I hope you enjoyed this audio.